The scripture reading for today is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Indeed. Thanks be to God. Welcome to the Painted Door. Uh, My name is Mark, if you're new. We have been uh, spending some of our time in worship together this summer listening to the parables of Jesus. I see lots of fans fanning back and forth out there, and here we are in a parable about fire and judgment, appropriate perhaps for our steamy auditorium here today. Actually, this was the most common teaching practice of Jesus, was to teach in parables, and it drove everybody nuts. His critics, those who were opposed to him, uh, were completely annoyed by him teaching in this way. And even his supporters, those who were behind him, were confused by it. And none of that seemed to bother Jesus. He seemed perfectly happy to annoy his critics and to confuse his supporters. In fact, it almost seems, it does even explicitly at times seem that that was exactly his intent. That he meant to annoy his critics and confuse his supporters. See, parables are not what we routinely think of them as. They are not illustrations that help to make teaching more clear. When we think about good teaching, we tend to think that it will always include illustration that will help draw out what is the clear and intended meaning of the teaching. Parables don't function that way. Parables are iconic stories that are told alongside 
some truth, but actually serve to keep it veiled. Jesus, when in teaching in parables, he is telling the secrets of the kingdom, but he's telling the secrets of the kingdom in a way that's consonant with their secretive nature. In other words, he's not just telling us the secrets of the kingdom. He's also telling us that the kingdom is a secret. And the parables bear that out for us. That's really their beauty, is that they reflect the secretive nature of what it is that they are providing some glimpse into. You see, it's very easy for us to wrongly think that the kingdom of God is something that can be seen by the naked eye, something that can be heard by the natural ear. The parables bring the kingdom of God to our ears in the same way that it comes before our eyes, and that is to say in an obscured and veiled way. We are only ever glimpsing the kingdom of God by faith and never seeing it with the natural or naked eye or ear. This is very important to know because oftentimes new believers, people who come into the faith, find themselves very disoriented because we come into faith expecting there to be some visible, tangible demonstration of a new kingdom reality before us. And so it's very confusing, very disorienting, for example, when we would say, I became a Christian and my marriage still fell apart. Or I became a Christian and I am still haunted by my addictions. Or I became a Christian and my health is still failing me. Or I became a Christian and I continue to be passed over for, for promotion in my work, in my career. We expect when we become a Christian, when we enter into the kingdom of God and begin to participate in the life of faith, that there will be some natural demonstration of this kingdom before us. And so sometimes, rather than be disappointed by the absence of that, we actually begin to make false conclusions that that, in fact, is what's happening. Perhaps this is even more common than becoming disillusioned as we enter into the kingdom of God. We come in and say, I became a Christian and therefore my marriage was rescued. Or I became a Christian and that is why I no longer struggle with addiction. I became a Christian and that is why my body is now fully healthy. I became a Christian and that's when my career really turned around, when I saw those promotions begin to happen. We want to claim that coming into the life of faith, becoming a participant in the kingdom of God, means now that God cares for me in some new way that he did not previously. That he provides better, tangible, visible demonstrations, more positive outcomes in my life. Okay, but this is not the way that the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is invisible. The kingdom of God can only be glimpsed through the eyes of faith, only be noticed through the ears of faith. It cannot be seen or witnessed by the natural eye. 
And so the outcome of the kingdom in our lives, then, does not tell a story that we can easily share with those who do not share our belief. With those who are not looking with eyes of faith. In fact, the natural eye will always scoff at what are the glorious manifestations of the kingdom. The natural eye cannot see, nor value, nor appreciate what can only be seen and valued by faith. In my own story, this played out rather clearly. I became a Christian and started to trust Jesus for the first time when I was a sophomore in college. And then six months thereafter, received a cancer diagnosis and was flung into eight months of chemotherapy. And things got very bleak toward the end of that. It appeared as though I was not going to make it. And I can recall, I've shared this story numerous times, very viscerally actually, being prayed for in a church gathering. And a manifestation of the kingdom being at hand. There was a glimpsing of the kingdom in that moment for me. And it was purely this, that I came to believe in that moment that the enemy of death had already been defeated for me. There was a profound eruption of faith, a belief that death was not a big, scary harbinger hanging over my life, but that the Lord had already defeated it in some mysterious way for me. There was no change in that moment of being prayed for in that church gathering to my circumstances. There was no news given to me that my body was now healthy. But there was new belief. There was new faith. And that in and of itself was the glorious manifestation of the kingdom of God in my life. A manifestation that for years after I did not share with anyone because it was too holy for me to risk having it scoffed at. And that's the kind of manifestation that the world does scoff at. When people of faith call for prayer, for example, in the wake of violent outbreak or some destructive event in our culture, the world scoffs, why pray? Enough prayer, something must be done. But the kingdom of God manifests in glory only to those with eyes of faith, only to those who can glimpse it through faith. The parables offer to us a kingdom of God that can only be believed in. Not a kingdom of God that can be seen or even a kingdom of God that can be felt. It's a kingdom that can only be believed in. And it's crucial to know that today as we engage with this particular parable, as we listen to these particular words of Jesus, this parable of the sheep and the goats that we read just a moment ago. The parable opens by painting this glorious apocalyptic picture of final judgment. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, starting in verse 
31, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. This is one of the most iconic pictures of final judgment offered anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus is painting this picture for us of this final judgment scene. And in this scene, Jesus, of course, is depicted as the king. He's named here as the son of man, one of the many titles that he's given in scripture. And as this king of this new kingdom, seated on this throne, he is making judgments as to where it is that the subjects of his kingdom will spend eternity. How it is that they will live out their time in his kingdom. I want you to notice something crucial here off the bat, and that is that this king is named Lord of all the subjects of his kingdom. That is to say, he is Lord of both the sheep and the goats. In fact, the parable pushes one step further and names Jesus as shepherd of both the sheep and the goats. Okay, this flies in the face of every assumption that we make about judgment. Judgments of any kind. Our assumptions about judgment is that it is always between those who are innocent and those who are guilty. When we hear that a judgment has been made, we anticipate hearing that there's been a separation between the innocent and the guilty. But if that were the sort of judgment happening here, then we would expect Jesus to tell a parable about sheep and wolves. It's wolves who are the guilty creatures. It's wolves who don't belong in the shepherd's flock. We would expect Jesus perhaps to tell a parable about finally at the end, at the great judgment, these wolves that have lived in and among the sheep, perhaps hidden in sheep's clothing, now finally being exposed for the guilty rabble-rousers that they are. But that's not the parable that we are given. We are given a parable of sheep and goats. We are given a parable where those who are being judged, all of them alike, belong in the shepherd's flock. Sheep and goats together, they are innocent creatures. Sheep and goats actually coexist quite well in the same flock especially in the ancient world. It was commonplace to have sheep and goats in the same flock and to see them as relatively equal creatures. In the story of the Exodus, some of you may know, when God institutes the Passover celebration, when he rescues his people, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt and instructs them to celebrate Passover, he tells them to sacrifice an animal for the remission of their sins so that their guilt might pass over them. And he tells them they can sacrifice either a sheep or a goat. They're interchangeable. 
And of course, this sacrificial animal from the Passover sacrifice typifies, becomes representative of the final spotless sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God is happy to use either a sheep or a goat as representative of his spotless son. Sheep and goats belong together in the flock of the shepherd. And this parable bears that out. This parable assumes that the good shepherd, the son of man, is indeed the shepherd of both sheep and goats, that he cares for them both, that he has led them both there. See, this is what's so jarring here. This separation of sheep and goats, it represents something new that is happening. Something new that has only begun happening here at the final judgment. Heretofore, sheep and goats have been allowed to live together. Heretofore, sheep and goats have been included in the shepherd's flock. For all of human history, they have lived together. It's only here at the end, at the final unveiling of the kingdom, that they are identified as separate. Okay, this speaks actually to the large theme of the parables that we got into a bit last week when we were looking at the parable of the ten bridesmaids, and that is this theme of inclusion. It's present in almost all of the parables that in the kingdom of God, inclusion is the norm. In the kingdom of God, inclusion is the baseline value. Inclusion is always assumed in the kingdom of God. Exclusion People being excluded always represents a disruption of the norm when it comes to the kingdom of God. And we see that again at work here. All of these creatures, sheep and goats, are included. And only here at the end, we have a disruption of that norm. We're given here a picture of that disruption. The parable starts by saying, of course, all the nations are gathered. All the peoples of the earth are gathered before this great king sitting on his throne. Jesus has cared for every one of them. He has shepherded them all to this moment of judgment, both the sheep and the goats. And now only here does he move the sheep to his right hand and the goats to his left. Does the great separation begin? And Jesus feels some need to offer explanation for that. Why is it here, finally, at final judgment, that this separation is happening? He speaks first to the sheep in explaining the separation. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. 
What are we to make of this? Is Jesus here saying that those who care for the hungry and the cold and the sick and the imprisoned, that they are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God? Is he saying that people who have a track record of compassion and kindness are the ones who at the end will be called blessed of the Father? Is that the point of this parable, you think, to instruct us, to charge us, to care for the most needy in our society? Well, you might think so. In fact, especially so after listening to how it is that this same king speaks the inverse when he speaks to the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me naked. You did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Then also they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There you have it, right? Clear as day. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. You had better not pass by an opportunity to care for the needy. You'd better not forsake those in need. You better not skip past even one because if you do, you are rejecting Jesus himself. Isn't that what he says? Maybe. It's worth weighing that he might be saying that. But the strangest reality present in this parable, something that is rather easily overlooked in the face of all that eternal fire talk, is that neither the sheep nor the goats have any clue at the final judgment about how to weigh their own deeds. What is really striking here in this parable is that the sheep have no idea that they were living in such a way that ministered to Jesus. They're shocked, even confused. Likewise, the goats have no idea that they were living in such a way that rejected Jesus. Don't you find that a bit odd? Can you, any of you, think of even a single deed from your own life that you have no clue how to classify morally? 
a deed from your own life that you are completely rudderless as to whether you should call it good or evil. Maybe you can. For my part, I cannot. I am always sure, no matter what it is that I'm doing, sure in the deepest sense of the word, in my bones, whether it is I am operating in something good and decent and upright, or whether I have gone to the dark side, as it were. When I look back over the course of my life, even that time of my life when I was not believing, I knew, I always knew, whether I was doing good or evil. I was always sure that I knew. Of course, over time, my measuring sticks have been reworked. Over time, my values have undergone various modifications. There's things looking back now that I was sure back then were good that I would now call evil. This happens continually, this rebuilding of our own value systems. But at no particular point do I ever find myself entirely rudderless. Never am I shocked at the revelation that something in my past was good or evil. I can always make the case for it. Indeed, in the present moment, I'm always sure. When I slink off to my study rather than wrestle with my boys, for example, I know what I am doing. I know why I'm doing it. I know that I'm being selfish, that I'm claiming time for myself, that I'm denying my children access to their father. I know what category that behavior belongs in. I don't really have any doubt. Likewise, when I graciously respond and simply let it go when someone cuts me off on the roadways. The one time that happened, I knew exactly (laughs) what I was doing. I knew exactly how to classify that decent deed. We are sure that we know whether our deeds are good or evil. Our whole person reacts, actually. Even if cognitively we couldn't call the shots, our whole person reacts to our deeds and bears witness to us with internal nausea or joy as to whether we are walking in what is good or what is evil, especially when it comes to matters of compassion, when it comes to the matter of caring for those who are in need. This is when the lines of good and evil become most clear to us. We don't wonder when we are caring for someone whether we are doing good. We don't wonder when we are turning a blind eye, willfully ignoring someone who is hurting. We don't wonder if we are doing evil. We know very well. Now, there's some debate in the scholarship on this passage as to what exactly it is that Jesus means by least of these of my brothers. 
There's many people who believe that he's simply referring to the most needy in our broader society. Those who are hungry and thirsty and poor and downtrodden and imprisoned, sick, etc. But there's far more scholarly consensus, actually, that what he's referring to here is his own disciples. The least of these of my brothers. That what he's actually saying here is that when we reject those who bring the word, those who spread the message of Jesus, when we don't treat them with kindness and hospitality, those who have given their life to sharing the kingdom, to speaking the word of Jesus, that when we reject them, we reject Jesus. I'm not too sure that that distinction matters all that much, whether he meant one or the other, because in either case, the point stands, which is that the sheep are rather surprised that they'd been living in such a way that ministered to Jesus, that their deeds mattered so much to Jesus. Likewise, the goats are surprised to hear that their deeds rejected Jesus. Here's the point. The kingdom of God is a secret. The kingdom of God is veiled to us. We don't know where we stand with respect to it or according to the values of it. And at the final judgment, at the great unveiling, there's going to be a lot of really surprised people. In fact, we're all going to be very surprised as to what it was that ministered to Jesus and what it was that did not. I promise you, if you arrive on that apocalyptic day with a bag of goodness over your shoulder, expecting commendation, you're in for a surprise. Likewise, those of you who crawl bloodied and wounded to that day with empty hands will be in for a surprise. See, because the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of what is good and what is evil, of what is right and what is wrong, we were not made to possess that knowledge. Since the beginning of humanity, we've been grasping for it, certainly. From the very beginning, we have been rejecting the word of God to us to not partake of that which gives the knowledge of good and evil, to not participate in grasping for the knowledge of good and evil. We have ignored his caution to us and have grasped for all we are worth to define right and wrong. We are desperate to know right from wrong because we are desperate to define ourselves as good or bad people according to what we do. I want to know where I stand. I want to justify my existence. I want to know that I'm a good person that I'm a decent person, that I'm an upstanding person, that I'm a righteous person. We've been doing it from the very beginning, and Jesus says here, we are in for a surprise when the goodness veil is finally lifted. We will be shocked to discover what it is that God calls good and what it is that God calls evil. You see, for all of our efforts to nail down those definitions, 
we have only ever and always been getting it wrong. Can't you see that? That we are no good at judging good and evil. Even when God so graciously gave us his law, even when he put in our hands this revelation of what it is that he calls good and evil, albeit a partial one, we took it and used it to build a sort of wax goodness that we were absolutely convinced was true goodness until the incarnation of God showed up on the earth and puked in the face of it. Jesus deplored the goodness of the law keepers. He despised what was the best guess according to human perception of goodness according to the law. He rejected it. They were rather surprised. Likewise, we will be rather surprised at the end of days. Because we do the same thing. We have taken the laws of our day, and every generation has them. Every generation sets up an idea of what is right and what is wrong. Every generation imparts to one another how it is that we wind up on the right side of history. There comes to be a cultural consensus about what is acceptable, what is decent, what is righteous, what is good. And then we scramble about according to that consensus, according to that idea of right and wrong to make sure that we are in the right. To make sure that we cannot be mocked as those ignorant ones who don't know the laws of our day. We're all in for a surprise. Because our best efforts to minister to Jesus, our best efforts to land on the right side of history those will not be the things that wind up finally being blessed by the Father. We can't pile up enough goodness for him because we don't know what goodness is. We're too blind. We're too blind to ever be sure whether the deeds that we are enacting are good or are evil. We're just going to have to trust that he's piling up good for us. We're going to have to trust, yes, that he's piling up good even in us. We're going to have to believe that the true vine gives life to his branches. We're going to have to believe that the good shepherd will lead his sheep home. All of our intentionality, it's a buzzword today, all of our intended goodness, it will fail us. It will be exposed. It will get us nowhere. Judgments of the world be damned. As Martin Luther says, we cannot know or feel that we are saved. We can only believe it. Let's pray. Father, 
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his righteous judgments. We thank you for his righteous life. We thank you for his faith. And we ask for it. Send your spirit so that faith would arise in us, that we would put our confidence and our hope only in the good shepherd and not in our ability to copy him. Help us to trust you and live in the freedom that that affords us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.